you want to turn to John chapter 20. John chapter 20, it's going to feel like Easter morning here because we're going to be talking about the resurrection of Jesus. John chapter 20. If there's probably, if there's one thing that, that is, tends to be a, a common experience with everybody here, it's, it's expectations. In, in more specifically unmet expectations and what's connected to unmet expectations with it, which is this thing I was literally just talking to Zach Watson about, which is disappointment. So if you want to know what kind of conversations I just immediately get into during passing of the peace, it's just we start talking about our disappointments right off the bat, two minutes before I have to preach. Um, Zach was telling me about a book that he's reading about disappointment. And, um, but we all, we all deal with that. We all deal with expectations. We can't go into a situation expectation neutral, right? Anything that we do, it's, it's filled with expectations. We might, we might be somebody who even says, well, I just keep my expectations as low as possible so that they don't get blown out of the water. It's like, well, that's an expectation. An expe- a low expectation is an expectation to protect yourself uh, from something that may not come true or, or, or may not come out in a different way than you imagine it. So we, we're all battling expectations and unmet expectations. For some of us, it can be things like, you know, marriage, finding that, finding that person, that spouse. You know, some of us have thought, by this age, I, I knew I would be married. And then you're not, you know. Or, hey, the person that I will marry is going to be like X, Y, and Z. You know, and it turns out they're, they're not. You know, they haven't put the cap back on the toothpaste in 10 years. You know, those things have not happened. Um, for some of us, it can be things like, like a career, you know. And I went to school and I'm telling you, I'm determined. The job I get, it is going to actually use the degree that I got for the job that I get. And it turns out you're doing something the opposite of what you got your degree for, right? That you spent $7 million on. Um, and then for some of us, it's, th- it's, it's a million other things, right? It can be retirement, right? These are all the places that I'm going to travel. This is the life that I've prepared, that I have built. And then something happens, you know, right around that time and your life is just altered and the expectations that you had are not met. And then you're just filled with disappointment and you're filled sometimes with disillusion. When something doesn't live up to what we thought it would, we we can drown in those things. We can drown in anger and, and depression, disillusionment disappointment. What we learn and what we're going to see this morning is that God is not absent in those moments where we have had another expectation that has gone unmet, that has just propelled us into levels of disappointment. We know that God never takes coffee breaks, right? He's never on a coffee break when things don't turn out the way we hoped. And sometimes an unmet expectation becomes the opportunity God uses to meet a need that we weren't even asking for, that we didn't even know was there, that in the, expe- the original expectations we had, we missed because we had our eyes, we had our mind, we had, some, we had it fixed and focused on one particular thing. And then God comes around, he doesn't give us that thing, but he surprises us by presenting something else in the process. You know, you've probably heard this expression, when God closes one door, he opens another. Well. That's actually not in the Bible, you know, not to bum everybody out. But sometimes when God closes one door, he doesn't open another door because he wants you to stay in the room you're in for a little while, right? And some of us are experiencing that today. We're in a place where 
we would like to see some movement. We're actually hoping for some change. We're hoping to be alleviated of some of the things that may be grinding on us or scraping at us. And the Lord has you in this place of non-opportunity or what appears to be non-opportunity. And yet he's going to use that to express something to you if you have the patience and the wisdom to wait. As we pick up in, uh, in John chapter 20, we're going to see the way that God remakes the world and how he remade the world and how he remakes us in the process. And he does it sometimes through not meeting our expectations in the way that we wanted but through exactly the way we need. And so when we pick up in John chapter 20, we see this woman named Mary Magdalene and she's making her way to the tomb. Remember, this is after Jesus has died. We've been building up to this moment all these weeks, all these months. Jesus finally dies. He's crucified. Um, the day after Mary Magdalene, we're going to read, is making her way to the tomb after, after the crucifixion. Again, whatever is going on in her mind, she is not skipping to the tomb with the knowledge and the excitement that the Lord has risen. That is not the way, the focus that she has as she's going to the tomb. In reality, she's carrying spices with her to complete the burial process. She couldn't do it the, the day before when he was buried because of the fact that it was the Sabbath and they aren't allowed to work. They weren't allowed to do any of those kinds of activities during the Sabbath. So now it is the day after Sabbath, the early morning, and she's on her way with spices to complete Jesus's burial process. She's living in a world of unmet expectations. But little does she know that it's a world that has been completely remade. She just doesn't see it yet. She doesn't know it yet. She doesn't realize her unmet expectations were about to be completely transformed. So let's pick up John chapter 20. Um, I'm going to read the, the whole chapter. So verses 1 through 31, picking up in verse 1, it says, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and she went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him, went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus's head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and believed for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. Verse 11, but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. And having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have taken him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. 
And she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Verse 19, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, peace be with you as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Verse 24, now Thomas, one of the 12 called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Verse 30, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which were not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is the word of the Lord for us today. We can see right at the very end there, and as we read through this chapter, there's two things that John wants us to know. He wants us to know why he's writing this account. He's wanting us to know why he went through the details that he went through, given the resurrection story that he wrote. If you go to some of the other gospels, you'll read different details. Each of them include different kinds of events and, and, and details that the, that the other writers uh, don't include. We're just looking at John's particular narrative here and what he lays out for us. But this is what he says in verse 30. He says, these things were written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. I'm laying, it's like John is saying, look, I'm telling you this with the detail that I have written so that you understand. Like Peter will say in the future with his writings, these are not just a bunch of myths. These are not just a bunch of clever writings. These are not things that we all got together and we just sort of made up a story about so that everybody would get on board this new religion that we were starting. He was saying, I'm writing these things so that you believe that Jesus is who he said he was, that he is the son of God. He is the Christ. And that by believing that, you may have life in his name. John wants us to know that. He wants us to know that. Less significantly, he also wants us to know that he was a faster runner than Peter, right? <laughs> I feel like that's so incredible when I read that. It cracks me up, right? I can just see John writing this, right, at some point and going, Holy Spirit, do you mind? Um, is it cool that I just write that I beat out Peter on the way to the tomb? Um, we had this rivalry going, and I just want it stated for the ages that I am the guy that has excelled in this particular sport that hasn't been invented yet called track. Um, 
But this is what I want to talk about this morning um, as we look through this passage. And again, there's a lot of verses here. Uh, we only have a short amount of time. But I want to answer this question, which is, how did the resurrection of Jesus remake the world for those who believe? How did it remake our world? If you're here today, you're part of this church family, you've trusted in Jesus for your salvation, you've repented of your sins, you are living in a remade world. We don't realize it, we don't acknowledge it, we forget it, but we're living in a particular reality based on what John is telling us here in John chapter 20. Here's the first thing that we want to look at when we ask the question, how did the resurrection of Jesus remake the world for those who believe? Well, it remade a world where Jesus has defeated death forever. It remade a world where Jesus has defeated death forever. The Christian faith, it hinges on this truth, doesn't it? All that the disciples had been taught and promised by Jesus, it hinged on this truth. It was such a blow as we can imagine for Jesus' followers to see his lifeless body being taken down from the cross and laid in some borrowed tomb by a guy named Joseph of Arimathea. John tells us in verse 9 that the disciples, they just still didn't understand. They didn't yet grasp what Jesus had been telling them. All those times Jesus has said, the Son of Man must die. He must rise in three days. It's like these brothers just weren't getting it. These sisters, they weren't getting it. He had said it to them, but they didn't have a vision for what he meant. They did not yet understand. This also reminds us of the things we don't understand when it comes to the way Jesus unfolds his plan. That our, our understanding of a thing doesn't alter his unfolding of a thing. It's so helpful for us to remember that as we look at the way Mary Magdalene responds to Jesus, as we look at the way Peter and John responds as they run to the tomb. What's so interesting for us is that death had already been defeated when Mary and Peter and John wandered to the tomb on Sunday morning. They were already living in a world that had been remade. They just didn't know it. They knew Jesus. They did. But they didn't understand the magnitude of what that empty tomb meant for them and for the world. Do we understand that? Do we understand? We can understand intellectually. Yes, Ronnie, I affirm that Jesus is the Son of God and he rose from the dead and he defeated death. We, death. we, can, we can affirm that, right? And we have to affirm it. Jesus must rise from the tomb. Or you guys have just literally wasted two hours of your morning at Substance Church. Right? He must rise. He must. He must rise. Because without the resurrection, we have nothing. We have a historical person known for his wise sayings and his humility, right? That we can admire and that we can aspire to. But that's all we have. And in the grand scheme of things, what good is that? What good is that? Especially when you consider what he was asking us to count the cost of what it meant to follow him. If he hasn't risen, why would any of us do that? Why would you be here? Why do I waste my time saying a bunch of words that are partially true? It doesn't make any sense. We have no hope that what he promised can be ours beyond the grave if Jesus has not defeated death. 
if what John has written in John chapter 20 isn't true. Tim Keller said, uh, the the former Tim Keller who passed away uh, earlier this year, he said, if Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. Right? In Tim's words, they they just mirror. Uh, He wasn't super original right here. They just mirror what Paul the Apostle wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15, 13, when he said, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, Paul says, then not even Christ has been raised. He was making an argument. We can't go back and unpack that. And then he says, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it's true that the dead are not raised. There there was a a controversy at the time within the Corinthian church where people were saying there's no resurrection of anybody. And Paul is making this point going back to Christ saying because Christ is raised, it means that God raises the dead. And then he goes on to say this, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. If that's not part of God's plan of raising the dead and defeating death, then not even Christ has been raised. And then he says this, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. He must rise, is what John is saying. And what Paul does there in 1 Corinthians 15 is he presents us with logic. He pushes against the argument that Christianity is a blind faith. He gets to the bottom of what hangs in the balance for every single human being. Everything hinges on the resurrection of Jesus. If Jesus has not been raised, then death reigns supreme and the world has not been remade. Death rules your existence. It hovers over you like a shadow. It follows you through life like a stalker. But the resurrection tells a different story for those who believe. Amen? The resurrection of Jesus remade a world where Jesus has defeated death forever. How do we know this is true by reading John 20? Because we read a narrative that tells us about two disciples and a woman named Mary who meet the risen Savior and their lives are never the same. By the way, the resurrection wasn't dependent on whether Mary or the disciples grasped what was going on, right? Christianity doesn't depend on Christians to be true. It depends on whether Christ defeated death or not. And will you believe that he defeated death? Here's the second thing his resurrection remade. It remade a world where Jesus is our true and lasting peace. We see, in addition to everything we just talked about, we also see some practicalities and personalities at work here, right? After Peter and John witnessed the empty tomb, we were told that they and the other disciples, they just retreat, they go back to their homes. There no doubt, we learn this in a minute, for fear of being seen by the, the Jewish authorities. But we have something interesting that John clues us into here happening with Mary Magdalene who lingers at the tomb, we're told, and weeps because she thinks the body of Jesus has been stolen. And we're told here she's met by the appearance of two angels and then by Jesus himself. 
who she mistakes for the gardener. Both of them ask her, they say, they say woman, they say, why are you weeping? And by the way, call, calling her woman would, would, have, would, have not, would have been a term of endearment at the time, right? Not like we would say it now, like, woman, why are you weeping? You know, I, that's not what they're saying, right? How we would say it. Like, what, are you crying again? Or how do I help you? Um, and our family would be more, man, why are you weeping? Listen to me. Um, but this recalls a moment, doesn't it, from last week? Remember uh, when Jesus was hanging on the cross and he saw his mother and made sure that she would be cared for after his death and after his resurrection. And I think that if we're not careful and because John gives so much time and attention to this, it, it's too easy to glide over these words by Jesus and the angels, right? We might think this, gosh, Mary, you should have known that Jesus was going to rise from the grave, right? For crying out loud, man, this dude, he told you this for three years, what he was going to do. And you know, the thing is, is that Mary should have known. The disciples should have known in the same way that we should know some of the things that we don't know. In the same way that we should remember the words of Jesus when we experience our own confusion that grief produces, right? We should remember that Jesus is tender towards us, that he's patient towards us. He's not rolling his eyes at us saying, oh my gosh, why on earth are you crying again? How many tears do I have to wipe from your eyes before you begin to understand that I got this? Said Jesus never, right? He lovingly asks, why are you weeping, Mary, to give reassurance of his presence, of his patience? It's one of the ways that Jesus provides peace to us, true peace, lasting peace. And it doesn't take long for Mary's eyes to be open to who Jesus was, even though we're given a hint that, that maybe his glorified body had changed a little bit in appearance. But Jesus tells Mary this unusual phrase. He says, he says, don't cling to me, Mary. And he's not putting her off by saying that. Um, there's nothing about his resurrected body that couldn't be touched. We're going to see that in a minute as he deals with Thomas here. Um, what Jesus is doing here. As he's tenderly approaching Mary, his, as he's reassuring her, as he's, he's preparing her. He's preparing Mary for her future relationship to him after he ascends to the Father. The relationship is about to change. It will now be experienced through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Who Jesus, remember, back in John 14, he called the helper, the spirit of truth. He said, hey, it's going to be better that I go because I'm going to send you my helper and the spirit of truth. And so this... This newly remade relationship Jesus has with his people, it's, it's deeper. It's deeper than Mary can possibly imagine at this point. He says, hey, I will be ascending to, look at the way he phrases it, to, to my father and your father. He says, to my God and your God. Jesus is saying, the veil has been broken. Death has been defeated. Followers of Jesus now, we have the same access to God that Jesus does. He is our God. He is our Father. This is the peace that Jesus came to remake in our lives by giving us access 
to God the Father, the one responsible for defeating death through Jesus Christ. Then we also read that Jesus appears to the disciples. They're hiding from the authorities. There's a lot of fear in the air. They don't know what's going to happen. It's chaos. And he shows them his hands and his feet. He just appears in this room where they're hiding out. We don't know how that's possible. We know that his glorified body obviously is working a little bit differently than his human body. But he appears to his disciples. He shows them his hands and his feet. He greets them with the words. What does he say? Peace be with you. And by the way, that's, that's, just not, that's not just a greeting, right? The way we just throw out greetings. We live in a very like flippant kind of greeting culture, right? That, this is not, you know, Jesus's way of saying, you know, what up, my dudes, you know? I mean, that's not like what's going on here. Like this, this greeting means something to the disciples who, again, are, are hiding in fear. They're, they're just, they're, they're in confusion. They're battling with unmet expectations. They're just, they're, they're, they have disappointment just washing all over them right now. Jesus says, peace be with you to show them that he is coming to them, not in judgment, but he's coming to them in peace, the peace that he established. Jesus absorbed. He had absorbed their judgment on the cross. Jesus is their mediator. Jesus is our mediator now. First Timothy 2.5, for there is one God, one mediator between God and man. The man, Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony. So we're reading about it right now, given at the proper time. Paul says in Ephesians 2, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. So we are not standing now with this wall of hostility that existed between us and God due to our sin that he cannot be tolerant of, that he is patient over, but ultimately not tolerant of. Jesus broke that down. He became our true and our lasting peace. This is why Jesus had to rise and remake the world that we all are living in right now. Here's the other thing his resurrection remade. It remade a world where Jesus can be the assurance for our doubts. He can be the assurance for our doubts. This exchange between Jesus and Thomas is incredible. I love this exchange. It's so hopeful, right? It speaks so much to our human experience with doubt. Somehow Thomas was not with the disciples when he first appeared to them. So Jesus makes another appearance and he does it just for Thomas. He comes back. He's like, man, I got to seek out Tom. The guy was gone that first time. I got to seek him out. And that's something not to miss. It's something not to miss when we think of the character of the risen Jesus. Here he is preparing to ascend to the Father. He had some stuff going on, right? Making his resurrection appearance, we're told, to more than 500 people who saw him after they'd seen him on the cross. And he comes back specifically for Thomas. Of course, it's not surprising when you think of Jesus as the good shepherd, who we're told will leave his 99 sheep to pursue the one. Right? Jesus doesn't just care, but Jesus gives customized care. Right? He seeks out the people that need him. He doesn't forget anybody. Jesus wants to make sure Thomas is reassured. But Thomas is skeptical. 
Thomas is skeptical. Unless I see and touch his scars, he says, I will never believe. And we just have to ask the question, do we identify with that? Do you identify with that? Is seeing believing or is believing seeing? And what the Lord does is he gives Thomas an opportunity that we will not have until we see Jesus face to face. And when Thomas, we're told here, experiences Jesus' scars with his eyes and his hands, we're told that he believes, he exclaims, he says, my Lord and my God, now I see. Now I believe. He makes this confession. It's a legitimate confession that forms a legitimate testimony, which is why John included it as part of scripture. But then Jesus does this interesting thing. He also points to the millions upon millions of other followers besides Thomas that are going to come after Thomas who will not have the benefit of seeing Jesus' scars with their own eyes. That would be me and you, right? And he says this line, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus provides assurance for Thomas's doubts and he provides Assurance for your doubts through the story of Thomas. Do not disbelieve, he says, but believe. It's like I feel like Jesus is saying that to me in the moment. Don't disbelieve, Ronnie. Just believe. Because the thing about doubt is that it can just be crippling at times. It can just feel like it's something that cloaks us. And we can't see it. And we're skeptical and we wonder, and it nags at us. Uh, in, 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 a, in his book, Help My Unbelief, uh, Barnabas Piper argues that doubt is not the enemy of faith, but an element of our faith. He says, he makes this quote, he says, the book of Hebrews tells us that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And then he says, we hope, we don't see. There's a difference between those two things. So it's important to recognize that that Jesus declares a blessing on those who believe without seeing, but who will see by believing. We will grow a deeper faith, a greater trust, a more solid hope, because we didn't have to wait to touch the scars of Jesus to believe. In some ways, Jesus is saying it's for your good if you don't have the benefit of seeing what Thomas saw. Why? Because the faith you need to believe will manifest itself then in even greater hope. Right? It has to. And here's the crazy part. Doubt is part of that process to get you to that place. So that helps us not to freak out about our doubts. That helps us not to freak out when other people that are close to us have their doubts. That's a process too. Learning not to freak out, not only about your doubts, but freak out about the people around you who you love, their doubts. Instead of just shutting those doubts down, saying, hey, that's part of the faith. That's part of the faith. Our doubts can lead to a deeper hope if we allow the Lord, listen to this, to mature our minds beyond what we can merely see with our eyes. Do you hear that? Our doubts can lead to a deeper hope if we allow the Lord to mature our minds beyond what we can merely see with our eyes. So I'm getting ready to, uh, in about three weeks, go and graduate 
in Kansas City, man, oh man. Um, I'd be fine not wearing the big puffy Harry Potter hat. Am I allowed to say Harry Potter in church? Um, but, uh, but Melissa insisted on it. So here we are. She gets a lot of joy. She's smiling with like that very smug joy that she has right now for that. Um, and that's okay. That's okay. Um, but here's what's interesting, right? What am, I, what am I thinking about when I think about Kansas City? Well, unfortunately, I am thinking about that hat. I'm thinking about that robe. Thinking about that scarf. I don't know what they're going to dress me up as. Some, some, kind of a, some kind of a clown wearing like purple and yellow. Um, but that's what I'm thinking about. I'm thinking about walking up and having the guy shake my hand. I'm thinking about the people that are going to be there. Thinking about how cold it's going to be in Kansas City. December, right? Here's what I'm not doubting, right? I don't doubt that the plane is going to make it to Kansas City, right? I don't doubt that the plane is going to make it. Now, some of you guys struggle with that, right? That's a real struggle. Um, for me, that's not a struggle, right? When I get to the airport, I don't go, all right, let me, uh, let me talk to the crew chief and uh, let me talk to the chief mechanic. I demand a tour through all the inner workings of an airplane. I mean, the only guy that knows what I'm talking about right now is Tim Hawley. But like, I don't, I don't demand to see those things, right? To, to sort of give me greater insurance. I, I just am, I'm just thinking, hey, you know what? I'm going to go graduate. I'm going to wear that hat. Uh, Melissa's going to post a bunch of pictures that I really hate on Instagram after that. It's going to be great. What I'm not worried about is whether the plane is going to get me to my destination. And what's great about that is that that allows me to focus on what I need to focus on, which is making sure I get my legs down that aisle, right? Doubt is an interesting thing in that it takes our focus off of God. It swirls around all the things that God has told us. I got this. I got this under control. And yet at the same time, as we see with Thomas, he's patient with us in our doubts. He allows us to express our doubts. He allows our faith to have elements of, of doubt contained within it. Why? Because he knows we're human beings. Because he loves us. Because he wants us to mature. He wants our faith to grow. And what's included in that is doubt. Let me close with this question. Where do you find yourself in this remade life? Where do you find yourself in this remade resurrection life of Jesus? Because this is where you are. This is where you and I and everyone in the world lives, whether they know it or not. We live in a remade world because of what happened in John chapter 20. We don't exist in a world where Jesus is not alive. The world has been remade by the resurrection. And that truth has the biggest implications for your life than anything else in the whole world. It's the game changer. Maybe this morning you are somebody who can identify with Mary, with Mary Magdalene. You're devoted to Jesus, but you have your head down. You're feeling the burdens of life without considering that Jesus is alive and he's invested in your life. And even though there are things you can't see, you can still trust that he's moving. I wonder what kind of illumination you might need to see Jesus as being more than the gardener of your life, but see him as the risen Lord over your life. That's really hard sometimes, especially when the burdens of life are weighing us down. Maybe you can identify with Peter and John. You live your life with a curiosity 
about Jesus. You're running towards some of the different doctrines and truths and some church things. And you're like, I wonder what this person is. These, these people that have devoted themselves to Jesus. Or maybe you're even a believer and you still just kind of back up and you go, man, these, some of these people are way more devoted than I am. What's going on with this? What are they seeing that I'm not seeing? Maybe you're wondering where Jesus is in your life. Maybe you're wondering, how is he moving in my life? Does, does he even move? Are we just praying to thin air on Sundays, you might wonder? Generally, you might just live in a world of fear about everything going on in the world around you. You're hiding out. You're just waiting to see what happens. Maybe you have a faith, but you're, but you're, but you're living in fear because you can't see how Jesus is moving in your life. Maybe you're like Thomas. You're a follower of Jesus. Thomas was a believer. A bit skeptical, though, and cynical about his influence in the world. You, you might say, hey, look, I'm not saying I don't believe. I believe. But then maybe if somebody could put a microscope on your life, you, you actually live like Jesus is still in the tomb in some ways. You let your doubts strip your faith instead of shape your faith. The resurrection of Jesus has remade the world. How differently will it allow you to live? How will it remake you? How will it rearrange what you love? How will it change how you see the world? How will it change how you treat your neighbor? How will it change how you serve your church family? How will it change how you listen to the people around you? Because the world has been remade by Jesus. And we can be assured and we can be reassured of that. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for remaking our world through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In that we now live in a world where death has been defeated. We have true and lasting peace and we have assurance for our doubts. Lord, would you speak to us in these moments and in this time, Lord, as we grasp as we live, as we grasp these things, as we live within the tension of these things, Lord, would you provide reassurance for us who are living in this resurrection life, who are living in this remade world? Lord, would you fill us with a hope that we may be struggling to grasp today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.